because David took responsibility for the fact that he was wrong, and when he was confronted with it, he repented. I have sinned against the Lord. It's that simple. That is a sentence that everyone needs to come to terms with in our own lives, because that is what rescues us. Not all the excuses we have about how good we are, how much we deserve to get into heaven, but the truth. I have sinned against God. I am incomplete. Jesus completes me. Because his righteousness is the only thing that gets me in. Because I can't do it on my own. Welcome to Uncaged Bible Study. We hope our name gives it away as we are looking to unleash God's word in its entirety from beginning to end and unlock the power within the pages of scripture. We aim to restore the authority of God's word in a world that has lost its understanding of doctrinal truths, as well as shed a light on how from the first page to the last page, the Bible is pointing us towards Messiah, our Savior, Jesus. So we hope you enjoy the Bible study today. And if you did, follow us or share the podcast to help us spread the word around the globe. And if you leave us a five-star review, that's a great way to let us know that you say amen and are impacted by what you've heard. So thank you for joining us on this journey. And in the words of Charles Spurgeon, the Bible is like a caged lion. It does not need to be defended. It simply needs to be let out of its cage. Let's unlock the cage together. So we left off last week with David kind of at the height of his reign. He is pretty much doing as good as he possibly could have done. And we and at the end of chapter 10, David is, he's winning lots of battles. He's expanding Israel. He is setting aside treasure for the building of a temple for his son. He seems to be in God's will. He's doing great. And then chapter 11 happens and everything breaks up and falls apart and we start to see some of the worst of David's life. Um, so these are tough chapters to get through because we don't often talk or like to talk about David's failures because David's a hero and someone we like to look up to and have victory over. David is a hero in the country of Israel. They still use the Star of David on their flag. He is just a pinnacle of biblical characters. He is second only to Jesus in terms of scripture that is given to his description and life and history. So David is a character we like to think about in a lot of positive ways, but tonight is not going to be that case. David fails. So here we go. Chapter 11, verse 1. It happened in the spring of the year at the time when the kings go out into battle, that David sent Joab his servants with him in all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon uh, and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. So we get this, this first verse is just this initial setup to let you know what's going on in David's life. And this gives us some insight into why he fails. David's not where he should be. It tells us right away, it says, in the spring of the year, this is the time when the kings would go out into battle. Now, it's not like it's football season and it's time to fight. 
what's really happening here is the springtime tended to be the best time to get battles going because of the terrain and the weather. So this is the best time for armies to march against each other because you're not going to lose your own army on your march because of the terrible terrain and weather. And it says, David sent Joab, but remained himself at Jerusalem. So the other kings, and David throughout all of his history, all of the great victories and battles of David are related to war. This is what David was good at. And David wasn't spending his time doing what God had asked him to do. David instead enjoys the spoils of being a king. He hangs out in his palace Maybe he's gotten a little bit soft, and he stays in Jerusalem. Everything else we read tonight would not have happened if he didn't. If he did what he was supposed to do, none of this would have been possible. But he doesn't. He remains in Jerusalem, and he takes it easy, and he lets others do what he should have done. He sends Joab in his place to be his general and do what he should have done. Verse 2. Then it happened, one evening, that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. Now, here's, here's the thing. This, this woman, it, it, we'll find out more about her. This is Bathsheba. She, as we'll find out later, was cleansing herself because her menstrual cycle had ended, and according to the Levitical law, You needed to clean yourself in order to go in to participate in worship because blood made you unclean. And so she was cleansing herself. She was doing this on her roof, which we might think in our societies as something weird or strange because you're out there for all of the world to see. But this isn't a society with indoor plumbing or lots of places to find privacy. And honestly, the roof was probably the most private place for her. She was just doing something... This was actually, for her, an act of worship. She's going out there and cleansing herself so she can participate in worship. And David has a palace built for himself that happens to be high above everyone else's. And as he walks out, he's able to see what anyone else wouldn't have been able to see. But because David was in a spot he shouldn't have been in, he stayed back when he shouldn't have. And now he's waking up in the middle of the night and he's out there and he's looking at what he shouldn't be looking at because David's in the wrong place. And she's beautiful. So strike two. Because if you don't know, men are visually stimulated. It's just biological. And uh, there's something that I think just a useful tip in all of this. Something my pastor, uh, a previous pastor I used to serve under would say is, it's not the first look that gets you in trouble because you can't avoid what's in front of you, it's the second one. If you don't bounce your eyes away and you stare, now you got yourself in trouble. And so David didn't look away. He got himself caught in the trap. Verse 3, so David sent and inquired about the woman. And someone said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So then David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her, for she was cleansed from her impurity, and she returned to her house. See, that's what we were talking about. When when it says she was cleansed from her impurity, she was cleaning herself from after her menstrual cycle so she could participate in Hebrew worship. And this also gives us insight into what happens later. If she just had her menstrual cycle, 
then what goes on when she gets pregnant means we know it's David's. It's not from her husband because she clearly wasn't pregnant if she was cleaning herself from the end of her cycle. Verse 5. And the woman conceived, so she sent and told David and said, I am with child. Now, the rest of what we're going to get into is David got caught in the trap, and now he's in trouble, and the rest of what he's trying to do is cover it up. But who is he covering it up from? You can't cover up your sin to God. God sees it. He's not hiding from God. He's hiding from the opinions of people. He doesn't want people to know, because this is David. This is the great David, the slayer of Goliath, the one who slayed his tens of thousands. He's the one who was anointed by Samuel to be the next king of Israel. He's the man with a, after God's own heart, right? This is how, who David is known as, and he doesn't want his reputation to be ruined, so he goes into this cover-up to protect himself from people. And this is also a person who, there, there's just not, this is what sin does. We've talked about this before. David has, at this point, seven wives and ten concubines, 17 women that he calls on at any time, and it's not enough for him because sin never satisfies. It's a temporary pleasure for a, a long-term suffer, and it never fully satisfies And the more you get, the more you want until you come to terms with it. And so David just didn't have enough. And he saw something and he took advantage of his power and he wanted more. And now he's in trouble. So then David sent to Joab saying, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah had come to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war prospered. And David said to Uriah, go down to your house wash your, and wash your feet. So Uriah departed from the, from the king's house. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all of the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. There's a couple things really interesting. One, it's said it multiple times, Uriah the Hittite. Uriah wasn't originally from Israel. He's not an Israelite. He's actually a foreigner who's come to faith in God and is living under the Israelite rule, and he has now become a righteous man, and this foreigner is now more righteous than David in this story. So that's one interesting thing to think about, especially in the parallel with Jesus and the apostles saying, spread the gospel to the Jew first and then to the Gentile, and then Paul going to the synagogue and preaching to the Jews who reject him, and then he goes next door and he baptizes the leader of the of the Roman world in their area, and he starts preaching to the Gentiles. And so just a little bit of foreshadowing there, but Uriah doesn't leave. He stays, and this is his response. When they told David, saying Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, did you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Now David's asking him, why would you stay here? Why wouldn't you go do what I asked you to do? Go go visit your wife. I'm trying to cover things up. Do my bidding, Uriah. And Uriah responds, The ark and Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go to my house and eat and drink and be with my wife 
As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. So he responds as a man almost who's being tested by the king. And he thinks, is, is the king trying to tempt me and make sh- see if I'm you know, willing to serve in his army? Uriah responds with all of the integrity in the world. He says, listen, the soldiers, my commander, is sleeping out in the wilderness. The tribe of Judah is sleeping out in the wilderness. In fact, God, the Ark of the Covenant, is in the tabernacle, sleeping out in a tent. What right do I have as a member of the army who should be in battle to go spend some time with my wife and enjoy frivolity. I don't have that right, so I won't. Now David's in serious trouble because his plan backfires. As often is the case, one sin leads to another, and it snowballs and gets us caught in a trap and a cycle that leads us further and further away from God. So David said to Uriah, Wait here today also and tomorrow. I will let you depart. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now when David called him, he ate and drank before him, and he made him drunk. And at evening he went out to lie in his bed with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. So now David tries to trap him by giving him alcohol and filling him up with lots of food and drink and making him feel gluttonous, and he tries to get him to lose his judgment through drink. But Uriah still lives with integrity and he sleeps with the servants and he doesn't go to his house. Verse 14, in the morning it happened that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. Now this is as cruel as it gets. David is not only going to do something evil to Uriah, he's giving the letter to Uriah to send for his own demise. And he wrote it, he wrote in the letter, saying, set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retreat from him so that he may be struck down and die. When David writes a letter to his commander telling him to put Uriah in the most difficult situation and then retreat from him so that the opposing army kills him, he is forcing Uriah's death and he's making Uriah deliver that message himself. This is as bad as it gets. David is gone. He's not paying attention. His idleness, the fact that he is he's not where he should have been, he wasn't doing what he was supposed to do, he wasn't fighting alongside his men where he should have been, instead he was enjoying the frivolity of his palace, and now he's got himself in a trap, and he's willing to do anything to get out of it to cover it up for the sake of his reputation with the people. Verse 16, so it was while Joab besieged the city that he assigned Uriah to a place where he knew there were valiant men. Then the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the people of the servants of David fell, and Uriah the Hittite died also. Then Joab sent and told David all of the things concerning the war and charged the messenger, saying, when you have finished telling the matters of the war to the king, if it happens that the king's wrath rises, and he says to you, why did you approach so near to the city when you fought? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who struck Abimelech, the son of Jerubbesheth? Was it not a woman who cast a piece of millstone on him from the wall, so that he died in the bez? Why did you go near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah Hittite, the Hittite, is dead also. He's testing David. He's saying, hey, you know this story. So tell David what happened and tell him that some men died. 
Tell him that this battle was difficult. And see if his anger rises. And he brings up this story and says, what were you thinking? Why would you fight so close to this wall? You know that that's a vulnerable position. Why on earth would... That's bad strategy. But instead, also make sure he knows that Uriah died. So the messenger sent, went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him. And the messenger said to David, surely the men prevailed against us and came out to us in the field. Then we drove them back as far as the entrance of the gate. The archers shot from the wall at your servants, and some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger told David, and from Joab, Joab's message, he's wondering if David's going to be angry that we did something stupid in battle. But David's response is this. David said to the messenger, Then you shall say to Joab, Do not let this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as well as another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it. So encourage him. He's wondering if David's going to be angry about a stupid tactical mistake that he shouldn't have made because it's an easy decision to not go up against the wall because they've already experienced stuff in battle that should deter them from doing it. The servant's about to tell David about a stupid tactical error, and he's waiting for anger to rise from David. Instead, David's response is, it happens. Uriah, one of his best soldiers, one of his best men, he's, he was given a high rank in the army even though he was a foreigner. He's told about his death, and David says, it happens. It's battle. Go take the city. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So Bathsheba had the correct response. She was sad and mourned. Uh, But then she also did what the king asked, and she married him and had his son. Now, this is the story. This is the difficult part of David, one of the most difficult parts of David's life. This is David acting in complete opposition to God. It starts with adultery, ends in murder, and this is the response. Nathan the prophet comes and speaks to David. This is in chapter 12. Now, we're dealing with the aftermath of this. The Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, there were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. Now, Nathan's telling David a story. There's two guys, one rich, one poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and with his children, ate of his own food and drank of his own cup and lay in his bosom. It was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. This is the story. This is the parable. Saying, there's two guys, one rich, one poor. Some traveler comes and stays with the rich man. And the rich man doesn't use any of his multitude of flocks to provide dinner for the weary traveler. Instead, he takes the poor man's only lamb that he loved like a member of the family and killed it. That's the story. So what he's doing is he's coming to the king because the king 
took the place of the judges, what the judges used to do. People would bring problems to the king, and the king would make a judgment, and the king's word was final. So now David is making a judgment based on the story Nathan has told him. David's anger was greatly aroused against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die, and he shall restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this and because he had no pity. That guy, that rich guy, he's going to die. And in his death, he's going to give the poor man four times what was taken from him. And I can't believe he didn't have any pity for that poor man. Verse 7, then Nathan, very bold Nathan. I like Nathan might, he's one of my favorite characters in this story, in, in the whole Bible. This is, I love that David, or that Nathan did this to David. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and, and delivered you from the hand of Saul. So after Nathan tells him this wonderful story, this fiction story, David gets mad and he, he declares judgment because he knows right from wrong. He's someone who has studied God's word and he understands what's right, what's wrong, and what God would require of this. And he says, this man deserves to die. And then Nathan said, this is you. Except when he heard that, he understood it was way worse because it wasn't just livestock. It was a real human being who died and a real human being who was taken from him. Bathsheba was taken from Uriah because of David's wandering eye and he killed Uriah. So a prophet has the willingness to say this. This is gutsy. You're saying this to a king who just killed a guy because he wanted to cover this up for his reputation. And now he's calling it out. I think he was willing to die for this. But verse 8, I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house. I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the sun. So Nathan's declaring God's raining judgment down on you. And it's what you said you deserve based on the story that I told you. But this is David's response. Now, before we deal with David's response, think about Saul. Whenever Saul was confronted by Samuel, the prophet, about what he had done wrong, what did Saul do? He made up excuses. He said why he had to keep some of the livestock for the people because the people were whining. He was complaining that Samuel was late, so he had to do the sacrifice instead of Samuel. He explained why he kept some of, them, some of the people alive, even though God told him not to. Uh, and he would never take responsibility for his actions. That was King Saul. David's response is this. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. 
That's it. All that judgment that was going to be placed on David, you're going to see a different response from God because David repented, because David took responsibility for the fact that he was wrong, and when he was confronted with it, he repented. I have sinned against the Lord. It's that simple. That is a sentence that everyone needs to come to terms with in our own lives because that is what rescues us. Not all the excuses we have about how good we are, how much we deserve to get into heaven, but the truth. I have sinned against God. I am incomplete. Jesus completes me because his righteousness is the only thing that gets me in because I can't do it on my own. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. That's, that's God's response. David says, I've sinned. He repents. Nathan's response is, the Lord has put away your sin, or in some translation, has taken away your sin. It's forgiven because of his repentance. However, just because David repented from his sin and God was not going to rain down judgment on him anymore, does not mean that David doesn't have to deal with the real-world consequences of his own actions, and he will. However, verse 14, because this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who is born to you shall surely die. Then Nathan departed to his house. And the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and it became ill. David therefore pleaded with God for the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. So the elders of his house arose and went to him to raise him up from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. Then on the seventh day it came to pass that the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Indeed, while the child was alive, we spoke to him, and he would not heed our voice. How can we tell him that the child is dead? He may do some harm. So David's child is, is dying. He decides to fast and see if he can earn some of God's mercy. It fails. The child dies. And David has been so distraught that everyone's afraid to tell him that his child is dead because they don't know what he's going to do to himself because of how he's been acting. Just because his son was sick. Uh, there is something interesting in this. I don't know what to make of it, but I'm going to give you the information anyway to see what sort of parallel you might conjure up in your own head. The son of David, David had been promised that it will be his son who sets up a kingdom forever. David's son will be the one, and coming through the line of David will be the Messiah, the one who sets up and reigns forever. That ultimately is Jesus. Now, this son of David, it says he died on the seventh day, which also that day of the week, the seventh day, would have been the same day of the week that Jesus was buried and, and dead before his resurrection. I think that's interesting. I haven't read this in any commentaries or anything, so this is just my own conjecture, but I'm sending it to you anyway. But interestingly, the child who comes after this child who died is Solomon. So after this child dies on the seventh day, which happens to be the same day that Jesus was buried and dead on, um, also happens to be the child who is replaced by Solomon, 
through which the line of royalty continues. So David's next son is the one who gets to be the next king and continues down the line that the Messiah would come from. Because the Messiah has to be now a descendant, not just of David, but of Solomon. Because the rest of David's sons were outside of the royal lineage because they didn't become kings. Solomon did. So that's just interesting. I don't know what to make of it, but this is a Bible study. So take that information. And if you if if synapses are firing and you find something in there that makes a light bulb go off, I feel like the light bulb wants to turn on. I just haven't quite figured it out yet. Then good. Verse 19. So they're afraid that David's going to cause himself harm when he finds out this is the case. So when David saw that his servants were whispering, David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore, David said to the servants, is the child dead? And they said, he is dead. Now, just in our own interpersonal communication, does this not make sense? Right? When you know bad news is coming and you fear the bad news and then you see people whispering around you and not sure how to deal with you, you sort of know that people found out the bad news before you. This is what happened with David. In verse 20, so David arose from the ground, washed himself and anointed himself and changed his clothes and went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. Now, that is something we can all learn from. Even in his deepest grief, when everyone expected David to go further off of the edge, David instead gathered himself and worshiped God at his worst moment. Then he went into his own house, and when he requested, they set food before him, and he ate. Then his servant said to him, What is this that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. This doesn't make sense, David. You were fasting and you were distraught and you were weeping and you were in mourning while the child was alive. But then after he died, you went and worshipped and you cleaned yourself up and now you're eating. What's happening? And he said, while the child was alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him but he shall not return to me. So this is David, David looking out into the future and he says, look, I, can't, I don't know if, if God was going to have mercy on me. God is merciful, but it's his choice whether or not he gives me that mercy. So I fasted. I didn't receive his mercy and honestly, I didn't deserve it. So I can't do anything about it, but I do know that if I worship God, I will see my son again. He can't return to me, but I can go to him. And that's David's response. I think that's healthy. Verse 24. Then David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and went into her and lay with her. And she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. Now the Lord loved him, and he sent word by the hand of Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. So Solomon is born, which Jedidiah means beloved of the Lord. So that's why he got that nickname. Now let's finish the chapter. Joab fought against Rabbah, the, the people of Ammon, and took the royal city. And Joab sent messengers to David. I have fought against Rabbah and have taken the city's water supply. Now therefore, gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and it be called after my name. So David gathered all the people together and went to Rabbah, fought against it, and took it. Then he took their king's crown from his head its weight was a talent of gold with precious stones 
and it was set on David's head. And he brought out the spoil of the city in great abundance, and he brought out the people who were in it, and put them to work with saws and with iron picks, with iron axes, and he made them cross over the brickwork, so he did all of the city to all the cities of the people of Ammon. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. So this is what happened. David made a mistake. He got caught in the trap. And then he got caught in a trap trying to cover it up. And his sin snowballed and got worse and worse and worse. And this is what we know. It started with Bathsheba getting pregnant because David committed adultery. David's repentance took nearly a year because it wasn't until after the baby was born that he repented. And then after the baby died and he worshipped God and admitted his guilt and recognizing that he didn't deserve God's mercy, he did what? He went to the city and captured the city. A whole year has passed and the same battle was waging. And as soon as David got where he was supposed to be, they won the battle. This is a wasted year of David's life. All sorts of mistakes, all sorts of heartache, all kinds of problems that could have been avoided if he had just been where he was supposed to be, when he was supposed to be there. And God granted him the mercy to wait a whole year to get him back on track. And when David got, got back on track, he joined the battle and when he was finally where he was supposed to be, they had victory. And he let his people fight for a year without him as he hung out in Jerusalem where he shouldn't have been. And, uh, you know, I think that's pretty applicable to all of us. I know that there are lots of moments in my life where even if I'm doing something good, am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing? Right now, there was a few years where I was married and having a great time, love my wife, still do, but I had stepped out of ministry for a couple of years, and there was a point where I just got miserable, and Juliet called me out on it, and she said, what are you doing? You're miserable? You see ethical issues at the place where you're working. It makes you upset. When are you going to start to pursue the career in ministry that you always wanted to pursue? And I said, good point. And I pursued it and I quit my job before I had an official ministry job. Uh, and that's the story of how I got here. Because I had wasted some time doing good things, being a good husband, taking care of my family, trying to take down our debt, but I just wasn't doing what I was supposed to be doing. And that misery caught up with me. And Juliet called me out on it and got me back on the right track. Uh, and now I'm finally where I'm supposed to be, doing what I'm supposed to be doing. And I'll tell you, I'd take the pay cut any day for this experience. Now, I just want to read something really quickly. Um, now, Psalm 51 and Psalm 32 are responses from David of this time period in his life. But there's a point in Psalm 32 specifically, David is talking about his repentance and his sin, but then there's a response from God in verses 8 and 9, uh, and really the rest of the psalm. So God responds to David, and I just want you to hear this. 
God says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Do not be like the horse or like the mule, which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, else they will not come near you. So what is he saying? God is saying, rely on me. I'm the one who knows the end from the beginning. I will guide you. Follow me. Don't be like the horse or the mule. Don't be like an animal. Don't be guided by your animalistic instincts because when you followed your animal-based desires, you ended up getting yourself caught in a trap, David. Instead, what does he say? Harnessed with a bit and bridle. Discipline, right? Add things that will steer you in the right direction. Discipline and follow me. It says, many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. So when you trust in the Lord, mercy will surround you. And that's what happened with David. I have sinned against the Lord. His sin was put away from him because of his repentance. Trust in God and put on the discipline to steer yourself in the right direction rather than being guided by your animal instincts. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you for this word. Thank you for this, these chapters in David's life. God, it's not easy to deal with these. It's not fun to listen to and talk about and open up David's failures, this hero in the Bible. We have to look at this horrible part of his past. But you're a God who speaks the truth. It's not the people in the Bible and the heroes in your word that will save us because you speak truth about them. They have failures. They're human. They're fallen. But what we all need, no matter how good we think we are, is you because we can't get to you on our own. But your righteousness you're willing to put on us through your son Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross. Help us to come to a realization of that mercy and share it. In Jesus' name, amen.